Do you enjoy gadgets like I do? Discover a wide range of useful gizmos to help make your life easier around the house, outdoors, and on the road at Gadgets Guy. Support this podcast by going to the show notes and clicking on Gadgets Guy for access to a world of handy devices, contraptions, thingamajigs, doodads, apparatuses, widgets, doohickeys, whatchamacallits, and thingamabobs. Fun time-saving gadgets are one click away with Gadgets Guy at twitter.com slash gadgets guy. That's G-A-D-G-E-T-Z-G-U-Y. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. In 1608, Samuel Champlain took some of the colonists up the Great River St. Lawrence to establish a new settlement and fur trading post. He founded France's first permanent Canadian colony, which he named Quebec. This strategic location was at the foot of a great rocky cape on the North Shore, which formed a natural fortress barring the way upstream to the interior. The early years of the Quebec colony were hard, and the population grew slowly. Champlain administered its affairs and took personal charge of an organized exploration of the unknown interior. The Founder of New France, A Chronicle of Champlain, Champlain at Quebec. The Quebec habitation grew day by day under the hands of busy workmen. As fruits of a crowded and exciting summer, Champlain could point to a group of three two-storied buildings. Each one, he says, was three fathoms long and two and a half wide. The storehouse was six fathoms long and three wide, with a fine cellar six feet deep. I had a gallery made all around our buildings, on the outside, at the second story, which proved very convenient. There were also ditches fifteen feet wide and six deep. On the outer side of the ditches I constructed several spurs, which enclosed a part of the dwelling, at the points where we placed our cannon. Before the habitation there is a place four fathoms wide and six or seven long, looking out upon the river bank. Surrounding the habitation are very good gardens. Three dwellings of eighteen by fifteen feet each were a sufficiently modest starting point for continental ambitions, even when supplemented by a storehouse of thirty-six feet by eighteen. In calling the gardens very good, Champlain must have been speaking with relation to the circumstances, or else they were very small, for there is abundant witness to the sufferings which Quebec, in its first twenty years, might have escaped with the help of really abundant gardens. At St. Croix and Port Royal an attempt had been made to plant seeds, and at Quebec Champlain doubtless renewed the effort, though with small practical result. The point is important in its bearing on the nature of the settlement. Quebec, despite such gardens as surrounded the habitation, was by origin an outpost of the fur trade, with a small, floating, and precarious population. Louis Hébert, the first real colonist, did not come till 1617. Lacking vegetables, Quebec fed itself in part from the river and the forest. But almost all the food was brought from France. At times there was game, though less than at Port Royal. The river supplied eels in abundance, but when badly cooked they caused a fatal dysentery. The first winter was a repetition of the horrors experienced at St. Croix, with even a higher death rate. Scurvy began in February and lasted till the end of April. Of the eighteen whom it attacked, ten died. Dysentery claimed others. 
On June 5, 1609, word came that Pontgrave had arrived at Tadoussac. Champlain's comment is eloquent in its brevity. This intelligence gave me much satisfaction, as we entertained hopes of assistance from him. Out of the twenty-eight at first forming our company, only eight remained, and half of these were ailing. The monopoly granted to Dumont had now reached its close, and trade was open to all comers. From 1609 until 1613, this unrestricted competition ran its course, with the result that a larger market was created for beaver skins, while nothing was done to build up New France as a colony. On the whole, the most notable feature of the period is the establishment of close personal relations between Champlain and the Indians. It was then that he became the champion of the Algonquins and Hurons against the Iroquois League, or Five Nations, inaugurating a policy which was destined to have profound consequences. The considerations which governed Champlain in his dealings with the Indians lay quite outside the rights and wrongs of their tribal wars. His business was to explore the continent on behalf of France, and accordingly he took conditions as he found them. The Indians had souls to be saved, but that was the business of the missionaries. In the state of nature all Indians were much like wild animals, and alliance with one nation or another was a question which naturally settled itself upon the basis of drainage basins. Lands within the Laurentian watershed were inhabited mainly by Algonquins and Hurons, whose chief desire in life was to protect themselves from the Iroquois and avenge past injuries. The five nations dwelt far south from the Sault St. Louis and did not send their furs there for the annual barter. Champlain, ever in quest of a route to the east, needed friends along the great rivers of the wilderness. The way to secure them, and at the same time to widen the trading area, was to fight for the Indians of the St. Lawrence and the Ottawa against those of the Mohawk. And Champlain was a good ally, as he proved in the forest wars of 1609 and 1615. With all their shortcomings, the Indians knew how to take the measure of a man. The difference between a warrior and a trader was especially clear to their untutored minds, they themselves being much better fighters than men of commerce. Champlain, like others, suffered from their caprice, but they respected his bravery and trusted his word. Quebec, whose existence year by year hung upon the risk that court intrigue would prevail against the determination of two brave men. From 1608 till 1611, de Mont had two partners, named Collier and Legendre, both citizens of Rouen. It was with the money of these three that the post of Quebec had been built and equipped. Champlain was their lieutenant and Pontgrave the commander of their trading ships. After four years of experience, Collier and Legendre found the results unsatisfactory. They were unwilling, says Champlain, to continue in the association, as there was no commission forbidding others from going to the new discoveries and trading with the inhabitants of the country. Sieur de Mont, seeing this, bargained with them for what remained at the settlement at Quebec, in consideration for a sum of money which he gave them for their share. Thus the intrepid de Mont became sole proprietor of the habitation, and whatever clustered round it, at the foot of Cape Diamond. But the property was worthless if the fur trade could not be put on a stable basis. Quebec during its first three years had been a disappointment because, contrary to expectation, it gave its founders no advantage over their competitors which equaled the cost of maintenance. De Mont was still ready to assist Champlain in his explorations, but his resources, never great, were steadily diminishing, and while trade continued unprofitable, there were no funds for exploration. Moreover, the assassination of Henry IV in 1610 weakened de Mont at court. Whatever Henry's shortcomings as a friend of the Huguenots and colonial pioneers, their chances had been better with him 
than they were now with Marie de Medici, the second and surviving wife of Henry the Fourth, an Italian by birth and in close sympathy with Spain. As regent for her son, Louis the Thirteenth, she did much to reverse the policy of Henry the Fourth, both foreign and domestic. Champlain states that de Mont's engagements did not permit him to prosecute his interests at court. Probably his engagements would have been less pressing had he felt more sure of favor. In any event, he made over to Champlain the whole conduct of such negotiations as were called for by the unsatisfactory state of affairs on the St. Lawrence. Champlain went to France. The slow growth and poverty of Quebec were due to no fault of his. It is rather the measure of his greatness that he was undaunted by disappointment and unembittered by the pettiness of spirit which met him at every turn. A memorial which he presented to the Chamber of Commerce at Paris discloses his dream of what might be. A city at Quebec a city equal in size to St. Denis, and filled with noble buildings grouped round the Church of the Redeemer. Tributary to this capital was a vast region watered by the St. Lawrence, and abounding in rolling plains, beautiful forests, and rivers full of fish. The heathen were to be converted and a passage discovered to the east. So important a trade route would be developed, that from the tolls alone there would be revenue to construct great public works. Rich mines and fat cornfields fill the background. Such was the Quebec of Champlain's vision, if only France would see it so. But in the Quebec of reality, a few survivors saw the hunger of winter yield to the starvation of spring. They lived on eels and roots till June should bring the ships and food from home. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. <laughs>